Less than two weeks to go before the Cleveland mayoral primary, and we have political expert Seth Richardson with us today to talk about what's been going on over the past week. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Seth and our colleague, Laura Johnston. It's a Wednesday and it's September. How are you? Good morning. I'm 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 good. I'm a little sad to be on the first uh, post Jane podcast, though. <laughs> yeah, we'll 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 limp along for a little while before we introduce uh, somebody to replace her, just so that there's a little bit of distance between the two. I uh, I will miss Jane dearly. Let's begin. Is there any penalty for Ohio House Speaker Bob Cup, Senate President Matt Huffman, Governor Mike DeWine? Auditor Keith Faber, Secretary of State Frank LaRose, and Amelia and Vernon Sykes for refusing to obey the requirements of the Ohio Constitution to show Ohio residents a proposed set of new legislative maps today. Seth Richardson, every one of these people swore an oath to uphold the Constitution, and they are willfully saying they're not going to do it today. What can be done about that? Well, I do think it exposes them potentially to some lawsuits of some kind if there is somebody who can show standing uh, that they have been harmed by this. And, uh, you know, what that could lead to is maybe some kind of injunction or something like that, where the courts basically say, no, you need to go with a map right now. And I think one thing that was kind of, um, you know, politically savvy that the Democrats did was introduce that constitution, that that map that uh, aligns with the Constitution, because it sort of takes away the argument that uh, Cup and, uh, um, you know, the other Republicans basically said that, no, we didn't have time to come up. We were our hands were tied. We couldn't come up with that. Now that is provably false that they couldn't come up with this map. And I think that gives maybe a little more legal standing to anybody who does challenge this. But the key here is that the the Constitution that the Ohio voters went and 70 percent of them put into effect in 2015, named a seven member commission and said that commission must today, September 1st, show the proposed maps and then pass those maps on September 15th. What they said yesterday, Cup and Huffman, we haven't heard from the others, is they don't plan to. And it could be days or more than a week before they do. And the harm then, Seth, you want to show harm, is that the public doesn't get to review or comment or call for changes on those maps before they jam it through. we got to remind everybody, 10 years ago, the Republicans got into a hotel room, secretly put together the most ridiculous set of maps we've ever seen. We've been living with them ever since, kept the whole thing secret, rammed it through. The voters don't want that. They spoke clearly. And here they are. I cannot believe that Ohio Governor Mike DeWine, who's up for reelection next year, is going to willfully violate the Constitution when he swore when he took the job, he would uphold it. Um, I, I don't know. Maybe uh, I'm a little more cynical than you then. Um the, you know, and but but back to the court thing though, and you talk about violating the Constitution. I think there's also a through line. If you go back earlier in the year, you look at Matt Huffman was already proposing. You know, at the eleventh hour of you know when the legislature got out for summer, basically saying, "Hey, we need to uh, pass this this update to the Constitution that essentially lets us blow past these deadlines." So you know, if and when they probably get taken to court, I think there's going to be a very potent argument for there to be some kind of uh, injunctive relief that basically says no. And on top of that, 
there is here is a map that is fully compliant constitutionally and not even like, you know, uh, uh, outlandish in favor of Democrats or anything that was proposed. Uh, I, I do think there is uh, it's pretty ripe for court remedy. I would right. think. So so let me ask this. This is a bona fide constitutional crisis when you have seven of our top elected officials in Ohio turning their nose at it. What is Attorney General Dave Yost's responsibility here? He's supposed to be enforcing the Constitution. He took the same oath they did, by the way, and he knows his Republican colleagues are violating the Constitution. Doesn't he have a duty, constitutional duty, to do something about it? You would think so. I mean, I guess we're going to, you know, he, he talks about, uh, uncons- you know, the unconstitutionality of things all the time. I guess we're really going to put that to the test with this when, you know, he how many news releases have we gotten where he's called something unconstitutional or he's challenging something as unconstitutional. And now you have something that is very clearly and blatantly, pro- you know, unconstitutional. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's going to put that to the test, whether or not he, you know, does what his job says he's supposed to do or whether he just kind of retreats back into the, uh, you know, the sort of um, uh, the party dogma of what is going on. It is a reelection year. You know, we can't forget that um, that that that'll be a sort of interesting look. This is one of the because, most because the other thing things. is it. Well, the other thing is it's interesting because, you know, Dave Yost, you know, main job is defending the state against lawsuits. And I don't know how you, you know, because this does seem to be unconstitutional. I don't know how you can defend it. It doesn't seem to be unconstitutional. It's by definition unconstitutional. They are required to do something no later than today. And they basically blew it off yesterday saying, yeah, ain't going to do it. I mean, that's just not okay, especially after they swore an oath. Don't they swear these oaths on Bibles? Aren't they all very, (laughs) you know, hold out to be religious? So they swore an oath before God to do something and they're not doing it. I just look, this is this is a big, big deal. What I wonder if this engenders is another uh, ballot initiative. I was just thinking the same thing. Changes that were put into the Constitution uh, in 2015 and for Congress a few years later were were to basically forestall a citizen effort to change the whole way we redistrict. And I wonder if that's what this drives, that we'll get a ballot initiative, that whatever they do with these maps, we'll throw them out in two years because we'll have voted in a process that takes all these guys out of it because they refuse to do their jobs. Today's going to be a big day. If they go through with this, we'll have a giant headline tomorrow on the Plain Dealer and on our website saying that these guys willfully violated the Constitution. It's this week in the CLE. How big of a deal is it that Chris Ronane is stepping down from his 16 years at the helm of University Circle to run for Cuyahoga County Executive in 2022? Laura Johnston, four years ago, voters had no choices. Armin Budish had no opposition to deal with. And so he just walked into another four years and we all know how that's gone. So how meaningful is it that we have this news yeah, this is a really big deal. I mean, you think about it, we haven't really had a real competition for county executives since the original first uh, election when Ed Fitzgerald beat Matt Dolan. So this shows how serious that Ronan is. He is the first Democrat we've seen challenging Budish in the primary. Obviously, Lee Weingart uh, stepped into the ring in, I believe, January, but he is a Republican. So this is someone from Budish's own party. In, a, in an interview with Courtney Astolfi, uh, Ronan repeatedly pointed to his leadership style, what he framed as his ability to work with others. And he wasn't bashing Budish, but just said he could effectively collaborate 
with city leaders, with nonprofits, with the business community, and said he would, quote, be entirely transparent to residents, which I guess you could take as a dig. Plus, he's got a really impressive resume that he pointed to of things he's gotten done, like a lakefront plan he worked out with the Metro Parks or the Euclid Avenue corridor project with the bus transit system. You know, I've known Chris for 20 years because I was covering City Hall when he came into the city administration with Jen Campbell as a city planner. He was later her chief of staff, and he was the architect of the big lakefront plan that came together out of that, that over the last 20 years we've seen develop. And it, it really has come along. Much more needs to be done. But having him be a county executive as we talk about the next phase would bring a great deal of expertise. But the thing about that, that you always hear about Chris, whenever you talk to people, everybody gets along with Chris. He knows everybody. He speaks his mind. It's not like he's some shrinking violet, but he knows how to collaborate. He's in the nonprofit sector. He's in the government sector. He's in the business sector. His success at University Circle, we're going to have a big story about it on Sunday. He's the polar opposite of Armin Budish. I mean, Armin Budish right. is... We, you know, we've talked and talked and talked about the level of incompetence there. He does not work well with others. He wants to get credit for everything. He uses what he thinks is his political muscle to throw his weight around. We'll be talking about that in another part of the podcast. So it's a sharp contrast well, that Chris and, and would feel, provide. I feel like Budish, you know, he was in the state house. He raised a lot of money and that's kind of how he walked into the job in Cuyahoga County, but he hadn't been here working with people on getting things done. So you're right. I mean, this is a different approach to leadership. And and you look back, he's worked for, Ronane has worked for Jane Campbell. He's the chair of Canalway Partners. He oversaw the creation of the Towpath Trail. He's on the board for Destination Cleveland, a former chairman of the, at the Port of Cleveland. I mean, those are some really important institutions in this town. And he has ideas. He wants Cleveland to be the freshwater capital of the world. And not to say that Budish doesn't have big ideas. He has, but um, he just can't get them done. <laughs> well, that's, that's the point. Uh, it's going to be interesting. Budish says he wants to give people a choice, which is, I feel like what people say when they don't want to attack their opponent, but that he's, he says he represents what a lot of people want. Well, Armin Budish hasn't announced whether he's running yet. A lot of well, that's people true. have suggested he not, but if he does, uh, the voters will have a choice. And then come November, There'll be another choice, which we don't usually have, because Lee Weingart, a Republican, also is running, also with a very, very sharp saber about the way the county has run and the way it's spent money. So we're going to have robust debates next year in the county executive race while we're having robust debates in the governor's race and the senator's race and the attorney general's race. <laughs> Seth Richardson <laughs> is going to be very, very busy in the coming year. Lots of uh, podcast <laughs> fodder, though. That's yeah. good. Yeah, I mean, and Chris is not formally announced yet, even though he has like twice now. Uh, he's going to have some. He quit some his of, job um, to do this. Right. I mean, that's yeah, more than an announcement. He's in, and then there'll be some event, I'm sure, down the road where he he announces his platform and things. But uh, big news out of the Cuyahoga County. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What will the new Sherwin-Williams headquarters in downtown Cleveland look like? Laura Johnson, we've been waiting. It's the first real skyscraper we will have seen in the city in quite some time. What is the goal of this building? 
Uh, the goal is to be, quote, transparent. I guess that's the word of the day. But the plan is for a series of glass structures. Maybe I should say shiny glass structures on, on the skyline. 36 stories, 50,000 square foot, a two-story pavilion to the east, and a four-story parking garage to the north. And then two overhead walkways would connect these three buildings. I like this idea of the architecture, which is to echo the, quote, square point towers, which I never would have come up with that term, but of the terminal tower and the key tower, which, you know, how they come to spires at the to at the top. So it, it's attempt to go with that while also to make its own mark. And they, they want lots of windows to see that the public could experience as much of this pavilion as possible from the outside. So the lower floors you'd be able to see in and as a sort of entrance and welcome center to the company's headquarters, because this is a big company. This is their headquarters. They want it to look impressive. They've got seven acres that they have to build on. They might use some of it for surface parking and develop it later. And there's also going to be some retail on ground level. So people would actually get to be in this new structure. Yeah, the, the images that we have on Cliven.com and in the Plain Dealer, it almost looks ethereal, but it's artist rendering. So you never right. get the full feel, but it, but it has, it has a nice vibe to it. It'll be interesting to see when you're standing in front of it, how it feels. It's good to finally have an idea of what the downtown landscape will look like. Check it out on cleveland.com. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. With less than two weeks until the primary, what is the latest in the race to replace Cleveland Mayor Frank Jackson? Seth Richardson, it's getting hot and heavy. There's panic in the streets. We're hearing from people that are desperate to get us to do stories on candidates, and there's lots of whispers going on. So what are you hearing and what do you think's happening? It's definitely crunch time right now, and everybody is kind of trying to, you know, get voters out, but it, it still remains really hard to predict how this thing is going to go because, you know, we only have so much data, and that data only tells us so much. But, you know, it, it, again, I think that uh, there, there are six candidates in this race who each feasibly have a, um, a, a good um, or at least a clear kind of path to making the runoff, and, I, I, you know, I don't see that changing anytime soon but yeah you're right there are um all sorts of you know whisper campaigns going on and pressure being applied from different sides um it, it's 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 been fascinating because it we kind of we talked about this last week where it's sort of coupled with there aren't you know many big sort of public events that are really going on um you know surrounding the mayor's race we're still kind of in this uh this, this coronavirus campaign uh mode there's, I mean, a lot of the stuff people call they want us to do is very petty stuff. And we're, we're not, you know, the savage arm of, of candidates to attack each other. That's why they raise money. If they think something's a problem, they should bring it up. So there hasn't been a lot that, that has caught our attention. We did do the stories about the disclosure forms involving Justin Bibb. And I think there might be some more about those. There's some other people that might have some trouble. Um, the, the one thing that, that did kind of, jump out at me and we have to explore it is there's a savage website against Dennis Kucinich that's being run anonymously and the data that's on there was obtained from the board of elections only by three people one of whom was you one was by uh, an elections advisor and according to the Kucinich campaign another was an aide to Kevin Kelly that's interesting yeah, it's definitely interesting. I, I I talked with them about it just because I was made aware of it, you know, a couple of weeks ago, and it really is a pretty pretty savage site. Now we decided not to write about it because we, you know, after kind of looking at the claims and looking at some of the data on there, 
um, you know, I, I thought that the claims were one kind of weak and uh, two, I didn't know that it merited um, any kind of amplification from us since, you know, it hadn't been like heavily shared or anything. But yeah, you know, if you go look at the thing, it kind of gives you an idea of some of the tenor of what is going on with the race, right? Where, you know, you have these, uh, you know, kind of small sort of campaigns that, you know, maybe they aren't breaking into everything, but I'm sure that there are circles that are sharing them, you know, whether it be on social media or just text messages or anything like oh. that. And um, yeah, the connection but, to the Kelly campaign is also interesting. Yeah, I mean, we look, we've made it a point, especially after the Donald Trump years, we're not going to let people use our platforms to spread false nonsense, right? We've been very, very public about that and we've gotten attention for it. So a website that has all sorts of savage stuff is not going to get anywhere with us. But I do think it, based on what Gucinich campaign is saying now that it is incumbent on Kevin Kelly to state for the record whether he had anything to do or his aide had anything to do with feeding information to this site. I mean, you would you would like to think these candidates, if they're going to take a shot, they would put their name behind it. Dark money has gotten in the way of that. But with what Kucinich has put out today, I think Kevin Kelly should at least say, hey, I, I had nothing to do with that. My aide had nothing to do with that. I don't know where they got the information. Or, yeah, we provided the information. It was public record and somebody wanted it. But one way or the other, we should get an answer. You, We have an interesting event coming up on Sunday. Um, the Word Church, which is a, a, you know, I think you can call it a mega church with Pastor Vernon. Pastor Vernon thinks only two candidates are worth considering for this race, Justin Bibb and Bashir Jones. So he's having an interesting event with just those two candidates. What's that about? So he's having uh, a versus is what he's calling it. I don't know if either of you are familiar with versus, but they're they're very cool events. They're basically rap battles that kind of started taking place over the pandemic. And, uh, you know, I don't think this is going to be a rap battle, obviously, but it's going to be a one on one debate, which is something we haven't seen yet. Um, you know, this election cycle, just because there have been you know, so many of these forums and debates that have, you know, six, seven candidates at them or whatever. And this, I think this is an interesting concept because essentially what, uh, you know, the pastor there is saying is these are, these are the two candidates I want to make the runoff and I want to amplify both of them. And I also want everybody to see, you know, the similarities and differences against each other. And I'm actually, you know, when you think about it, I'm kind of surprised that there hasn't been a little more of that when you think about it with such a crowded field. Um, and it's something that probably could have been pretty healthy over, you know, hindsight's 2020, right? But it's something that maybe could have been pretty healthy over the, uh, the course of this campaign, where instead of having hey, every candidate gets a question down the line and let's, you know, repeat the process. It it, it would have been nice to see more of these kind of one-on-one -on -one things. Right. I, um, I'm, I, I'm really I, excited I, for it. I think it's going to be pretty interesting. I said after the the two um, uh, city club debates that, that I wish they would change it where the candidates ask each other questions, that you would set up the pairings ahead of time and, and, and Sandra Williams would get to ask a question to Justin Bibb and Justin Bibb would, and, and you know, have the rebuttal, ask the question, let them answer it, rebut. Then the next set, Zach Reed gets to ask a question of Kevin Kelly. I, I think the tenor of those questions would be interesting in helping judge the candidates and it would be much more specific and focused than the generic talking points. It's a lot harder to do talking points when one of your fellow candidates is asking you a pointed question about your record. And I think you'd get a much cleaner understanding. This could be very interesting between Justin Bibb and Bashir Jones, the two younger people running. So I look forward to 
seeing it. The uh, last thing I wanted to talk to you about, you did a story on the early voting. You got the numbers, I think, on Monday of where the requests are and what what they seem to show. It's hard to say what they seem to show, right? Because we don't really know what neighborhood each is going to vote for. But there are neighborhoods that are getting more ballots this time than they did last time around. Yeah, you know, probably unsurprising, uh, Ward 17, um, which is kind of the Cam's Corner, West Park area, um, you know, is has the highest number of absentee ballots requested this year. And they're, you know, that they're far outpacing uh, their 2017 total. And, you know, there's still two weeks to go. And I think it's it's probably worth noting that when I looked at these numbers, uh the, the absentee requests this year are already outpacing the 2017 total, but it still looks like we're going to have a pretty low turnout election. So, you know, the margins really matter here. But one thing that I did want to look at is which wards, um, you know, were kind of performing better compared to uh, their 2017 totals. Ward 17, uh, Ward 13, which is Kevin Kelly's ward, is, you know, has about 300 more requests as of Monday than they did in 2017. I think that's probably telling something. Uh, but another interesting thing I noticed is that uh, the near the near west side, you know, some of those wards, uh, you know, requests are up there as well. And you know, you can and there's a lot read, of Justin Bibb signs in those yeah, wards, right? You can you can kind of read between the lines in some of these things, and so you, you do start to wonder, okay, well, is this you know Bib momentum that we're hearing about real? Because we are seeing more requests there, and uh, you know, fewer requests elsewhere. Um, one thing, one other thing that I thought was interesting was um, Ward Seven which is Bashir Jones's ward is actually down uh, as of Monday was down 200. It was the third worst performing ward in terms of absentee votes. Now it did have a high number of um, early in person votes, but that still puts it down, you know, election over election. And uh, that, that makes me kind of wonder about um, some of the momentum over there. But to go back to what I said at the beginning, ward one, um, was one of the better performing wards on the east side it's like the second best performing ward of any of them and uh you know that councilman joe jones did endorse um Bashir jones and uh you know the local connections do matter so i wonder if he's kind of able to pick up some of the you know uh, perceived slack there we'll see we'll see it's interesting it's coming down to the wire and like i said in the beginning there's a lot of anxiety now because people are worried about not making it this week in the CLE, what was the bombshell that dropped in the trial of former Cuyahoga County Jail Director Ken Mills Tuesday? Laura Johnston, this is a big one. It doesn't get much <laughs> higher up than this that somebody gets into trouble. Yeah, this is the former chief of staff for Cuyahoga County Executive Armin Budish. Earl Lichen, also the former mayor of Shaker Heights, he testified Tuesday that he signed an agreement to give sworn statements as part of the investigation into county government. In exchange, prosecutors agreed not to use those statements to charge him with a crime. We do not know when he made this deal, but... He talked about this May 2018 meeting where Budish asked Metro Health CEO Akram Boutros to reassign the nursing supervisor at the jail, Gary Brack, because Brack at a county council meeting accused Ken Mills of blocking the hiring of nurses and routinely disrespecting the sheriff, Cliff Pinkney. The the idea that that the chief of staff signed an agreement to avoid prosecution of a crime is as damning as it gets for the Buddhist administration, right? I mean, let's face it. The, yeah. the, the, the guy you rely on to run the whole thing is signing an agreement to avoid being charged with a crime. What is that crime though? Is it, are they, were they implying that there was, there was some kind of leverage used with 
in that conversation to to get the nursing director at uh, Metro Health fired. I they didn't say exactly what it was, but wow, the chief of staff did something to make sure he wouldn't be charged with a crime. And what does that say for Armin Budish having a chief of staff that is making those kind of deals? Right. And I mean, Lycan has a really long career. He's been very respected. So this this did come as a as a bombshell. And it got really interesting in the testimony. So the prosecutor asked Lycan if he had ever investigated Brack's claims from that from the county council meeting that that there, you know, sorry, I, that about the block, the blocking, the hiring of the nurses. And Lycan said that, he, yes, he had investigated that. But he had previously toned prosecutors in this agreement that there was no investigation into Brock's claims. So the prosecutor actually had a sidebar at court saying we need to declare Lycan a hostile witness. That request was denied. Meyer asked him again, and then he said he misunderstood the earlier question, and he did not investigate Brock's claims. But <laughs> what? Like, I mean, sorry, wow. I wasn't confusing explaining that, but that must have been confusing in the courtroom. Well, we're still all waiting, right, to see when Armin Budish is called to testify. He's on the witness list. We were expecting it last week. Is there any indication? Will it be today? This is going to be a hot moment. I don't know. Maggie uh, Keenan, the former budget director, testified yesterday, um, and I think she might be called back today. So I'm not sure where we stand there. But it, it is they're just, you know, kind of one one jaw dropper after another, whereas, you know, Armin Budish had asked the U.S. Marshals to investigate the jail. And Lycan said yesterday he was surprised at the depth of issues in the jail. This is the chief of staff who's in these meetings. Like you would think they would know what's going on in the jail before the U.S. Marshals tell them. Yeah, it's it's staggering. Corey Schaefer is doing a great job covering this yes. trial. Check out his content on This Week or <laughs> on Cleveland.com. <laughs> You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why is Ohio Governor Mike DeWine asked for an investigation of Bishop Sycamore, a would-be school whose football team was obliterated in a game last week on national television? Seth Richardson, our own Matt Gould, wrote a column saying that this team shouldn't be playing any high school. It doesn't. It's not in the Ohio High School Athletic Association. It's very sketchy what it's about. What do we know? Well, you know, DeWine is asking for an investigation because they bear investigating, you know, after the, you know, the, the ESPN game where it became really abundantly clear kind of what was going on here. Um, you know, once you peel back the, you know, the surface a little bit, you start, you start to find some real problems that, you know, uh, Matt pointed out in his um, column that was, you know, great. It showed a lot of the, uh, the issues at hand, but there's also the issue of, you know, this is a, it's a, it's a charter school, an online charter school. Um, you know, it lists itself as non-charter, non-tax supported, but it very well might not be in compliance with state law as far as what charter schools have to do. So the more you look at this thing, the more questions really kind of arise from it. And, you know, it goes, you know, even just kind of at face value, there's the issue of the player safety, right? Where you've got, you know, athlete, student athletes playing two games in three days. That's incredibly dangerous for adolescents to be playing you know, that short of a turnaround schedule, it's, it's banned by OHSAA for a reason. Now, obviously they're not OHSAA members. So uh, I I'm, I'm interested to see how this unfolds because we've seen some kind of cases of this around the country. Um, but really, I think the investigation right now is just kind of trying to determine, Hey, is this thing even a school? Because 
they're not, you know, the building that they're registered at is an athletic training facility and they've got, uh, you know, as you peel back even more, they've got graduates from 2020 who are playing, you know, again, like, you know, coming in from California, there's all kinds of questions surrounding this program. You know, what I saw somebody defending this a little bit, um, saying that why, why is everybody attacking this school? It's a place where young black athletes get a chance to have a future that this, that this seems like that there might be race involved in the attack, um, that, that they're playing football games. They're trying to have a future in football. This is a vehicle by which they might be able to do that. Is there, is there anything to that, 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 that this is, this could be legitimate and, and people just don't like it because of what it's setting up? Well, I think people need to look at the, the sort of flip side of that. I think people are conflating, you know, looking into the school with, you know, thinking that the players themselves did something wrong. The players didn't do anything wrong here. As far as we can tell, they just they wanted to play football. They thought that this was a, you know, a like you said, a vehicle for them to get more exposure, possibly get to college. Right. The question becomes when this is in, you know, a a charter school that is kind of billing themselves as, hey, we'll get you the exposure you need to potentially get to, you know, Division one or NCAA or anything like that. There's questions about it being predatory at that point where. You know, are they are they coming in and basically selling a bill of false hope to these students who may, you know, maybe see football as kind of their only way out? So and then and then collecting yeah. a lot of money based on that. It was, I mean, there was a lot of talk during the ESPN coverage because they they were slaughtered by this real class team. And a lot of people were were saying that ESPN got played and, you know, into believing that this was going to be a real matchup. So that's what that's what got the attention was this was so lopsided. I think it was 30 to nothing in the first quarter that yeah. that it set off a social media buzz. We'll have to see what the investigation turns out. You're listening to This Week in the CLE, and that does it for Wednesday. Thank you, Seth. Thank you, Laura. Thank you to everybody who listens to this podcast. <laughs>